For the rest of us, please stand for the reading of God's word. Today's reading comes from Genesis chapter 30, verses 25 to 43. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you, that I may go, for you know the service that I have given you. But Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it. Jacob said to him, You yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock has fared with me. For you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly. And the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now when shall I provide for my own household also? He said, What shall I give you? Jacob said, You shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb, and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later, when you come to look into my wages with you. Every one that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. Laban said, Good. Let it be as you have said. But that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it, and every lamb that was black, and put them in charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is, the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks, and so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set forth the faces of the flocks toward the striped and all the black in his own flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the the flock, that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants, and male servants, and camels, and donkeys. Teenagers having to stand a lot today, huh? (laughs) That's okay. Um, Have you ever felt forgotten by God? There are two ways we feel forgotten by God. When life gets difficult, we wonder if God has forgotten about his promise or that we even exist. Much like Joseph, the son of Jacob, when he was sitting in a prison cell for a crime he did not commit. The other way is when we are in sin and we think the eyes of God must be blind. See, Jacob can't see the hand of God in his trial with Laban. He's much like that first part of feeling forgotten by God. That with his father-in-law, 
but God tells him in a dream in the next chapter. What this chapter really is about is the providence of God. Providence is one of those churchy words. I'm going to try to define it for you the best I can. Chapter 20, I'm sorry, chapter 30 and chapter 31 are a study in descriptive versus prescriptive literature. Chapter 30 really is just what happened. Very little mention of God throughout all of it. In fact, the second half, really not mention of God at all, except by Laban, who is trying to manipulate Jacob. But in chapter 31, Jacob gives us an idea of what's been happening under the surface. God had appeared to Jacob in a dream and told him what would be happening, that God would defend him and take up his part. Chapter 30 is what did happen. In fact, we even see with Jacob's wives, them, them say, praising God for actually what would be very sinful and they knew it was wrong. In the rest of the chapter right here with his work, we see Jacob's craftiness being exalted. Um, chapter 31, we are told what's going on beneath the surface as Jacob relays a dream that God gave him of the events of chapter 30. Jacob's life, especially before he is renamed as Israel, is one of providence in that we see his providence. John, see God's providence. John Piper, I think I have a slide right here. I tried to put all my quotes in slides today so you don't have to just listen to me. Providence is God's purposeful sovereignty. Its extent reaches down to the flight of electrons, up to the movement of galaxies, and into the heart of man. Its nature is wise and just and good, and its goal is the Christ-exalting glorification of, God's, of God through the gladness of a redeemed people in a new world. To put this more simply, I would say providence is God's, God's direct sovereignty. See, everything happens, happens due to God's control, but there are things where God reaches out and makes them happen, as opposed to allowing other things to happen. For instance, Samson. Samson's not following the Lord, so the Lord has this Philistine girl uh, cross his path, and he decides he wants to marry her, which was against God's law. God uses Samson's disobedience to accomplish his purposes, and that's what it says in, in the book of Judges there. However, you have times where God, where God will make things happen, like, for instance, in what we've just read here, with the sheep coming, um, being born with stripes and spotted and, and of a, a black color. Providence, the reason why Jacob's life seems, uh, seems to scream God's providence right now is because in the narrative, he doesn't realize it. He and his wives decide on their plans and their schemes, and they're so excited when they work, but truly it's God who is the one who is doing this because he had promised two chapters earlier that he would have offspring for, for Jacob and then also prosper Jacob. This is our sin of pride too. We don't acknowledge that it's God's hand at work. Instead, we prize our own ingenuity, grit, and cleverness. Pastor Andrew Curry, in his sermon on chapter 30, he sees the whole chapter really in the light of God's providence. I'm not going to preach his sermon. Um, I'm not going to preach his sermon today, but I just want to note his points, and especially as we talk about last time on patriarchs. What is the, what is the um, context of what we're working with here? His first point was, providence cannot be stopped by human obstacles. Providence cannot be stopped by human obstacles. 
That's certainly been true in the, in the life of his grandfather and his father. There was lots of human obstacles that tried to prevent the calling and election of God here. Abraham had a lot of human obstacles. Half the time, it was his own fault. He would say that his wife was his sister, but God, God's plan was not, was not stymied. Isaac was basically bullied by the Philistines but after a while, they end up making the same. They end up making the same agreement with him as they did with his father. Andrew Curry's second point was providence grows the child of God. Abraham literally has his name changed, and we see how he changes through that by his own name change. But let's focus on Isaac. Isaac knew that Jacob would be his heir. He had heard the prophecy of God just as surely as his wife had heard when she inquired of the Lord why she was having such problems in her pregnancy. And he knew this, but he liked his older son Esau better, so he was going to bless Esau. And then, according to God's, to God's submissive will, he allows Jacob to, to deceive Isaac. And then when Isaac realizes it was Jacob he blessed instead of Esau, it says he trembled violently because he realized that human, human obstacles cannot prevent God's providence. And then he grew from it as well. Something we need to remember as well. Just because we mess up doesn't mean that's the end of the story. Just because we mess up doesn't mean we cannot then change to turn back to the Lord. Even as children of God, providence grows the child of God. And when Jacob left the home, he blessed Jacob. Isaac blessed Jacob. He didn't have to do that. He could have said, nope, fool me once, shame on me. Shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. He wasn't fooled. He was operating finally from a place of faith. Then finally, Andrew Curry's third point was providence is wonderful because God is wonderful. Not much to say about this other than look at the Bible. Actually, more important, look at the people around you right now. If it wasn't for the providence of God, you have any idea where they would be at? I was speaking with the Baptist pastor here in town. And we were talking about this very thing. And we were saying, it's like, I was like, well, I'd probably be in North Dakota somewhere. I'd probably be a severe alcoholic like my father and my father's father before him. I wouldn't have much of a hope for a future. And worst of all, I wouldn't have Jesus Christ in my heart. And that's the worst thing I can think of. And I wouldn't even know that I was missing it. If it wasn't for the providence of God, that's where you're at too. You have any idea where you'd be at? Even if you were successful and it seemed everything was going wonderful for you on the surface without the Lord, you don't even know what you're missing. Providence is wonderful because God is wonderful. But for the grace of God, but for God's providential hand in my life, I have no idea where I would be, but I do know this. I wouldn't have the Lord in my life. Last time in Patriarchs in chapter 30, it was about Jacob's family life. His wife, his first wife, very fertile, second wife, not fertile. They decide their servants are going to go into the mix. You have the mandrakes, the trickery. You have the two wives, the two sisters playing one against each other with the children. And it's an utter mess. But we know in all of this, it was God giving fertility to his wives. This chapter, we are now looking at his work. Last chapter, it was about his family. Now it's about his work. And how God is also sovereign over that. 
What's wonderful about chapter 30, chapter 30 likes to mess with us because chapter 30 wants to leave out a lot of the working of God. That's why we have to go to chapter 31. See, there's a way I could preach chapter 30 today and I could preach it in a TED talk because there's a certain way because I could just leave out the work of the Lord because that's what kind of chapter 30 does for us because it wants us to read chapter 31 so we get a better understanding that no, it was God this entire time. It wasn't the sticks. It wasn't the the watering and his schemes. It wasn't the mandrakes. No, it was God. And then we look at our own life and we're like, okay, we can decide, okay, it's my cleverness, it's my craftiness, or we can understand that if I'm in the center of God's will, I'm in the safest place there is. And that the Lord walking with me is where I need to be. The first half of chapter 30 was about God. It was about God's providence, though unacknowledged by those involved. In 31, and in the second half of 30, it is also about God's providence. And this is kind of a spoiler alert right here, but Jacob, he does all this stuff with the sticks, but in chapter 31, when he tells his wives, there's no mention of these sticks because he has this acknowledgement. No, it was God the entire time. Because even if he was super good at, at sheep husbandry, Laban changes his wages 10 times. Becca just read this, right? About what his wages would be. Laban never goes by this. It'd be one week, he's like, okay, it's, if they're striped, another week, they'd be spotted. He changes it 10 times and God brings the increase every single time. You know, there's another Star Wars character that Laban, um, that Laban is somewhat re- reminiscent of, is that he alters the deal, pray you'd, he doesn't alter it further. This chapter really tests us. What I mean by this is that when we read it, we can read it through an entirely naturalistic lens if we don't include everything around this before and after it. We can say, okay, you just have to be really smart. And then you can, out, you can outfox the people in your life. That is just completely out of context, though you'd be looking at the entire chapter. If you are smart enough or lucky enough, then everything will turn out fine. No, this was God who opens the womb, and it's God who provides defense and shepherds. In chapter, in Romans chapter 11, when Paul is speaking about the mystery of Israel's salvation and God's further plan for them, he writes in verse 29, I think I have that up there. Oh, you guys are so good. You're just following along. All right. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. This is one of the most comforting and probably will be one of the most frustrating things in your life. Because you can be in a life, you can be a part in your life where your heart is just done. There's a song by Rich Mullins. There's a line and it says, I've been praying so hard it feels like there's blisters on my heart. And then you'll find out God, God is still there. And you're like, is he though? But you'll find out, no, he has not. He's not given up on you. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. That's talking about Israel. Here we have literally Israel. Jacob will be called Israel. And he's in this part in his life where he doesn't really have a a, a vision from God. He's already gotten a vision from God. He'll have another vision of God. But he's in this place in his life, 14 years of basically slavery. And then he gets this deal. And the guy keeps changing the deal with with him. But he has this but he needs to have this trust in the power of God, this providence of God for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. A friend of mine in ministry, I was at general counsel a couple weeks ago and um, he reminded me of something. Um, we were talking with some people. It was, it's actually the current 
district superintendent of North Dakota. His name is Winston Titus. I've known him since I was in sixth grade. Um, he knew me before I knew the Lord, and he knew me during my wild years. In fact, he, he grabbed the back of my head because in high school I used to have long hair. And I'm like, that was over 20 years ago, Winston. So we're talking, my, my friend who is a transplant to North Dakota, is a minister in North Dakota, he's there, and he was, we were just talking, and they're saying, how do you know each other? And we talk about from college, he's like, he's like but really, it's during one of the lowest parts in my life. He's like, I'd given up on ministry. I mean, I'd, I'd put out my resume and everything, and nobody wanted to. I went through this period of, of sin that God brought me out of, and I just really felt like, okay, you know, that's not for me anymore. And I told him at the time, it's like, don't count, don't, count, don't count it out. God has a calling on your life. He's like, don't tell me that. He got like, upset with me and I just like, you know, stone face. I was like, don't count it out. God's call is irrevocable. And then he remembers that he's in ministry today. And he's like, I didn't want to hear it at the time. But that, is, that is the thing with God's providence is that his gifts and calling are irrevocable. When we talk about chapter 30, once again, I said we could look at it through a naturalistic point of view of just craftiness and everything. I'm reminded of this prayer from the book, The Valley of Vision. Actually, I just saw it this morning. I added it to my sermon outline. It's, at not, it's, not, in your, uh, it's not in your slides. I did it like right before I came up. And it's, uh, oh God, it amazes me. It's amazing that men can talk so much about man's craftiness, craft, creaturely power and goodness. When if thou didst not hold us back every moment, we should be devils incarnate. It's a Puritan prayer from a collection of Puritan prayers called the Valley of Vision. Jacob may have thought that he was the provider. He may have thought he needed to defend himself. He may have thought he was the shepherd, but God is revealing to him and to you and to me that he is the provider. He is our defender and he is our shepherd. Let's get into the chapter right here. In verse 25, we're in the second half of chapter 30. Who is your provider? For most people, even those who say they are people of faith, they still see themselves as their provider. Now, many will say that God is their provider, then live as though all of their life is wholly dependent on them. This is proven or disproven when they lose some portion of what they have. Everyone has that panic and heartache when catastrophe hits, but how long does that, does that last? Is it part of our, our, our image of ourselves when something is taken away and we have that panic? Who are we trusting in to be our provider? I was watching Oprah one time. There's extenuating circumstances. Don't judge me. Um, and it was during the economic downturn of 20, 2008. And there was a pastor and his wife on there, and they had lost about half of their um, 401k in the stock market lowering crash or whatever we wanted to call it at the time. And I remember they're on Oprah and they were sobbing like they had lost a child. Now, by the way, I understand if I'm in their spot, like I'm going to be pretty upset because it's going to change the way I'm living my retirement. But I was like, what a shame to be in front of everyone in the nation and bawling over this. It's like you told your people all the time, trust in God. But when it came to your turn, you're like, I'm trusting in the 401k. And Susie Orman, of all people, had to call them back to faith. I don't know if you know who that is, but she's a financial analysis. You know, she's just, she, she's, she's quite bombastic. And she had to tell them, what about your faith? You still have a lot. Just wait on this. 
Who is your provider? In verse 25, there's no place like home. It's been 12 years since last I lived in a Dakota. I will say to the people that I'm from North Dakota, but truly in my heart, I'm an Iowan. I don't, I don't know when that happened. I don't know when I started seeing myself differently, but truly in my very heart, I see myself as an Iowan. Jacob's different. It's been over 14 years, and in his heart, he is still in the promised land. In his heart, he is still home amongst the tents with his father and mother, and yes, even his brother. He wants to go back to the place of faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, verses 9 and 10, by faith he went to live in a land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city that has found foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So in verse 25, he says, As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Verse 26, Give me my wives and my children of whom I served you that I may go for, um, from you and um, they may go for you know the service that I have given you. This is one thing that uh, he is very aware of is that Laban is a cheat and he wants to remind him, I've worked for you. When I go, they're coming with me. Isn't that kind of a weird thing? You're like, of course they are. In the ancient Near East and when you're dealing with somebody who has a whole lot of tough people with them, um, you just want to make sure he remembers. And I can't blame him either. In verses 27 through 28, Laban, he does not want Jacob to leave, but Laban said to him, if I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it. Divination. So there are some differences in the different translations um, about uh, Laban and how he figured out that God had blessed him via Jacob. Some of your translations are going to say by experience. Others are going to say by divination. The word all of them are translating is nachach, which is, which is without a doubt divination. In fact, the only subtlety as far as experience goes is experiencing through divination. He, had, he was a pagan. He was absolutely a pagan. And uh, he, was, he, was, he was saying this. I imagine the translators of the KJV and other ones just kind of figured like, how could you not just see that God was blessing you with Jacob. When, you, when Jacob came here, you had nothing. And now after Jacob's been working for you for a while, you have an abundance. Before Jacob came, he was barely scraping by and now he's rich. This tells us much about Laban. This tells us much about Laban because he pays lip service to Jacob's God. If you go in your scriptures right here, you'll see when, he, when, when Laban mentions the Lord, in verse 27, but Laban said to him, if I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination the Lord. And you see in your translations the way that's spelt. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. I was at the small groups this last week, and I think in both small groups somebody mentioned, that's Yahweh. That is the covenant proper name of God. Laban's using this. Laban is, oh, here we go. Awesome. Um, Laban is a pagan. Why would he use this? to manipulate Jacob further. It's just like in the news, all of a sudden this news anchor, you know, has no care about the Lord, is starting to quote Bible verses because they're trying to manipulate you. They're ripping them out of context. It's what Satan did to Jesus Christ when he was trying to tempt him. 
Laban here, he does not believe in the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, but he wants to manipulate Jacob. You ever wonder why godless heathens in the news will all of a sudden start quoting scripture? It's to manipulate you. It's like footloose. You figure out what your goal is, and then you find scripture to justify it. As long as on the surface it says dance, we expect John Lithgow to dance. Pastor Vody Bachman was uh, being interviewed by somebody pertaining to this Marxist organization. And the person who was interviewing him is like, what about that, that, that thing that Jesus said about the 99 sheep and one is, one is missing? So he goes out to find the, 90, the one and leaves the 99. And Pastor Vody Bachman, to his incredible credit, he's like, let me stop you right there. Here's what this means. And he actually witnesses to the man. You cannot use it for your own purposes because God is telling you he's coming after you, man. And I'm like, oh, good on you, man. Because that's what they were trying to do, trying to manipulate you by attacking you where they think that you're soft or where your sympathies lie. But that is not the case. Once again, the captain of our salvation, Jesus Christ, when being tempted by, by Satan, does not allow God's word to be manipulated against him. Verses 29 and 30, Jacob has a question. In 29, Jacob said to him, you yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock has fared with me, for you had little before I came and it has increased abundantly and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now when when shall I provide um, for my own household also? He has 12 kids. Some of you have a lot of kids. I don't know if any of you have 12 kids. That's a lot to provide for. And he wants to know this, who will provide for him? That's Jacob's question. He has done great work for Laban, but what about him and his family? It's getting pretty big. You've been there, right? It's easy to sing, Jehovah Jireh, my provider, his grace is sufficient for me, for me, for me. It's easy to sing that when the bills are paid and there are no financial worries, right? It's a whole lot harder to believe who is my provider when we're looking down the barrel of that student loan that won't go away. Actually, I've kind of got a personal testimony in this where I've kind of failed in this, honestly, is that my little adventure in Ohio when I had all the tests done, when I had the uh, minor stroke, and I even told Becca, I'm like in the hospital bed, I know you're not supposed to do this, and I'm like, how are we going to pay for this? And Becca had to remind me that The Lord is our provider. The Lord is our provider. Who will provide for Jacob? This is a question Jacob has already, has already had answered for him in the dream two chapters before this. The Lord said he would provide for him. That he would provide for him and his family. But Jacob, remember after he gets up from the dream, he says, if he will. Laban is not Jacob's provider. If there's one thing about Laban, we know is that he is not Jacob's provider. He says in verse 31, he says, what shall I give you? Jacob said, Um, what shall, uh, see here. He said, what shall I give you? Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. If If you will do this for me, then I will again pastor your flock and keep it. I do, I, I always smile when I come to this part right here because Jacob is like one of those really bad bosses who act like payday is like a gift towards you. And you're like, okay, I worked all week. Okay, this is the, this is the push and pull right here is I do, my, you get my time, you get my labor, 
You get my expertise and then I get money. You paid for that. That's what this has. So I love this part. It always makes me smile a little bit because Laban's like, oh, what should I give you? And Jacob's like, don't give me anything. Are you kidding me? What have I been doing the last 14 years? He, Laban is like one of those bad bosses, like I said before. Um, he is not Jacob's provider. He wants Jacob to be dependent on him instead of independent. And so he wants, to, he wants the wage to be seen as a gift instead of a wage like it is. Um, last week, I compared Laban to the Ferengi from Star Trek. And I feel like that was a pretty good illustration. So I'm going along with that today because he was a big believer in the rules of acquisition, especially number six. Never allow family to stand in the way of opportunity. (laughs) One thing is for sure, Laban is not Jacob's provider. What about me and you? Sometimes we think our job is our provider when we lose our job. All of a sudden, I mean, it's terrible, right? And I've been there before too. It's not fun. I mean, it's terrible. I mean, it really tests your faith because then you, get, you have to answer the question, who is my provider? Laban is not Jacob's provider. So Jacob in verses 32 and 33, he has this idea. He has this idea, okay, this will be my wages. I will get all the undesirable sheep. I'll get all the undesirable sheep that are the minority in the flock and that will be my wages. Jacob, actually, this is a fun, I don't know, trivia type thing. There's actually a breed of sheep called the Jacob sheep. And I think I've got a slide right here. Yeah, here are Jacob sheep. Um, you can see they kind of look like a dairy cow. They have extra horns and everything. I don't really have a big point about this other than I thought it was neat that there are a breed of sheep called Jacobs that are speckled and spotted and um, they actually have several horns that other sheep do not have. Um, he has this idea that, yes, the, uh, this is a great deal as far as Laban is concerned, because on the surface of things, it looks like Jacob will get a very small portion of the flock, and Laban agrees to this. Laban agrees the deal on the surface really does favor Laban, so he agrees. It's not good enough um, since we read in the next chapter, Laban changes his mind 10 times. In this, Laban crosses a line. Before this, Laban had in many ways blessed Jacob and he was blessed because of it. That's part of the promise that God promised to Jacob. Those who bless you will be blessed and those who curse you will be cursed. Even when he had deceived him over his wives, one could see that in the light of the minor and major prophets of God using a sinner to judge his righteous ones. But now he will be legitimately cheating Jacob, and for this he will pay for it in literal livestock, in literal money. It's a good thing he didn't have to pay for it with his life. He wants to cheat Jacob. He should have checked, he should have checked first who Jacob, whose Jacob was. Not who Jacob was, but whose he was. See, Laban would have not gone to another landowner, would have gone to his flock and start smacking around his sheep. How did he think he was going to get away with abusing the sheep of the true shepherd? This gets to the second point right here in verses 35 and 36, Jacob's defender. Being cheated or wrong is a terrible thing. It's only natural that we want to take revenge, but God tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourself. Believe it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. 
This is a matter of faith. This is a matter of trust. It's trusting that God's justice is higher than our justice, that he really will defend us against those who come at us and that we have to just follow him and trust in him for these things. There was a time in my life I had a bad experience in ministry and those who are ministers, you've had bad experiences too. We don't talk about it much. And I remember at the time, People, friends of mine, people who knew the situation, they're like, why don't you speak evil against what's going on? Why don't you run these people down? And I'm like, okay, first of all, I'm positive I've hurt people in ministry too, and I didn't even mean it. So there's that. And what God has forgiven me from is so much greater than what they've done to me. And I can trust God to take care of the situation. Laban is a legitimate cheat. In verse 35, starts with the word, but... When you have the word but, whatever came before that, you can just discount. In verse 34, Laban said, good, let it be as you have said, verse 35, but that day Laban removed the male goats that were, stri- that were stripped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had been, that that had white on it and every lamb that was black and put them in charge of his sons. What is this guy doing? He says, let it it be as you have said. And verse 35 starts with, but. That's right, Laban wastes no time in trying to cheat Jacob. There's a couple explanations of why he does what he's doing. Either one, he is hiding Jacob's rightfully gained wage from him or he is separating those things that would have been his wage from the rest, from the, bigger flo- from the bigger flock in order to limit the number and lower the wages that were already agreed upon. Laban would have seen it like this. There's no fine print. I can do whatever I want with those sheep. So I can put them over here. The likelihood of them being able to mate and being fruitful and multiply will be drastically reduced. Also, he doesn't trust Jacob. And of course, people who are untrustworthy do not trust others. Here's another rule of acquisition from the Ferengi. This is rule number 111. Treat people in your debt like family. Exploit them. He was a firm believer in the rules of acquisition. Did not take any time trying to exploit his son. There's really no reason for us to look at the... There's really no reason for us not to look at this next chapter to understand what's going on. I talked about the difference between descriptive versus prescriptive. Prescriptive is what we look towards. We don't make all of our doctrine over descriptive because descriptive is telling us basically what has happened. Prescriptive is what should have happened. In verse 31, when Jacob is speaking to his wives, he says this, verses five through nine of chapter 31. And said to them, I see your father does not regard me with favor as he did before. But the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all of my strength. You know, when Jacob shows up and he sees the, the shepherds of Laban, they're all just hanging around the water hole. They're like, oh, Bill hasn't, hasn't shown up, so we're not going to water the sheep. They were lazy. Jacob, for all of his faults, he is a very hard worker. He serves her father, their father with all of his strength in verse seven. Yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages 10 times. Once or twice is infuriating. 10 times is a joke. I read on here, but God did not permit him to harden me. 
but God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God had taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. 10 times, he really pulled out all the stops trying to cheat Jacob. And this is one of the reasons why I do not believe it was Jacob's craftiness and what he did with the sticks, because if it was, then you would expect the same result instead of different results every time the sheep gave birth to these lambs. He really pulls out all the stops trying to cheat Jacob. What should Jacob do? But what do you do when you are cheated, when you are wronged? When Laban does this, the first thing he does is he takes off three days away in verse 36. And he set a distance of three days journey between them and Jacob, uh, Jacob and Jacob's pat, pastured the rest of Laban's flock. Another thing uh, Laban was a firm believer in was the philosophy of Dwight Schrute. Oh, that worked a lot better in my mind when it was right. Okay, there we go. There are three things you never turn your back on. Bears, men you have wronged, and the dominant male turkey during mating season. <laughs> he, he, cheat, he, was cheating, uh, he was cheating his son-in-law, Jacob, and he makes sure he doesn't want to be there. After Laban wronged Jacob, yet again, he sees it as wise to create three days di- distance. He has a, he's a firm believer in, once again, the philosophy of Dwight's root. In short, he is a coward. God will avenge Jacob on, on Laban during this, in which his sheep, the strongest sheep will be Jacob's. The increase will be Jacob's, while the, what's left over is Laban's. And we saw that, we see that in this next section, verses 37 through 43, Jacob's shepherd. Jacob has a very interesting way of doing sheep husbandry. When Jacob is telling his wives in the next chapter about how God transferred the stock of Laban to himself, he doesn't mention any of the sticks and water thing, right? Jacob's plan didn't bring the increase. That was God's hand. Now, the thing, though, it's an interesting thing with the, um, with the sticks. I'm going to read that again here. Then Jacob took the fresh sticks of the poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is the waters, watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the, uh, the flocks spread in front of the sticks. And so the flocks brought forth striped and speckled and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks towards the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. So this right here, um, we don't really understand this. I mean, there's no other reference in the scripture to what he's doing here. There's really no reference, no tradition of this. The best we understand is it's another superstition like the mandrakes. We actually do have specific archaeological evidence and historical evidence of the mandrakes. We have nothing about the sticks thing other than even kind of like what today, there's just old wives' tales that like if you want a boy or a girl, you should do X, Y, and Z. Women who are pregnant, you probably, Alyssa, you've probably heard people say, if you want a boy, um, you should be doing this. It's, it's something akin to that. Jacob does this, and it's kind of like, a, it's kind of like um, 
putting his thumb into the eye of his, of his uh, father-in-law because Laban sounds like the Semitic word for white and he, and he uh, exposes the white of those branches. But there's nothing in the scripture that says that that is somehow some kind of medicinal way of making sure you get speckled and spotted livestock. If you don't believe me, go out today, buy a ton of uh, perfectly white coated sheep and then do the same thing. And if in like two years, you have a flock of mainly speckled and spotted, I will eat my words. But I'm thinking it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. That was Jacob's plan, but it was God who was actually present in it. It wasn't the sticks. God appeared to Jacob in a dream in this next chapter, and never does he tell him, hey, good one with those sticks. I was going to come. I was going to be your defender. I was going to be your good shepherd. But you know, you already had it, you already had it taken care of. You know why we have this in the scripture? It's an example of God's patience and his faithfulness in the middle of our ignorance and stupidity. God is Jacob's shepherd. What is happening here is God is Jacob's shepherd. He is providing a table for him in the presence of his enemies. He is making sure that he is not in want. In a couple of chapters, he makes him lie down in green pastures by wrestling him. He leads his people Jacob's people by the still waters and he restores their souls. When his formerly murderous brother is after him, the Lord has him walk through the valley, a shadow of death, and he is with him. God's rod and his staff comforts him. Even if it means he has to walk funny afterwards. The Lord is your shepherd. He provides for you a table in the presence of your enemies. He leads you beside the still waters. He guides you through paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The great lie of the devil is for you to forget that and to think I'm my own shepherd. I am the captain of my own soul. I am the one who, who sets these things as opposed to God being my shepherd. The one who protects, the one who provides, the one who defends. In verses 40 through 42, we see the great honesty and integrity of Jacob. I think we are seeing so much in Jacob's character starting to change, but obviously the big change is when God changes his name to Israel. He is good to his word. He separates the stock from one to another. This, made, this could have hurt Jacob. The spotted and speckled sheep could have mated with the pure spotless sheep, giving better likelihood that the spotted and speckled sheep would be born. However, he is honest. He lives with integrity and God blesses him. In verse 43, uh, which is the last verse of this chapter, thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants, camels and donkeys. Laban obviously did not have any integrity, but Jacob does. He is good to his word, separating the fl- his stock from the other stock, and he is blessed because of this. The last verse sums up all of this. God fulfills his word to Jacob. He had already promised him. And we see this, we realize this, we say, thank you, Jesus. But here's our problem. We want to be our own defender. We want to be our own shepherd. We want to be our own savior. We see this in the extreme when we see those people who, we, we see those people who are consumed with vengeance. 
It has destroyed their mind, but we should see it in the subtle ways as well. That unforgiveness we're holding on to. And we tell God, the cross wasn't enough. You were bruised for their transgressions. You were crushed for their inequities, but I need to bruise them. I need to crush them. And this is what happens when we seek vengeance. This is the person who's overly defensive. They drive everyone away. We also want to be our own savior. But the fact of the matter is we make a poor shepherd. We make a poor defender and we sure make a poor savior. Worship team, would you come up at this time? I started off this sermon with a question. Have you ever felt forgotten by God? All of Israel felt forgotten by God. And the Lord told them in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 16, Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Do you feel abandoned by God? Your name is engraved on his hands. It was done with spikes. He has written your name on his heart. How can he forget you? He's engraved you on the palms of his hands. Remember who's your provider. Who is the one who is your defender? Who is your shepherd? Who is the good shepherd of the sheep? Actively trust and live in all of these three, three things in your life practically. When tragedy does strike, when you do have the bill that comes in, who is your provider? When somebody is speaking evil against you, who is your defender? If you believe God's your defender, then you wait and see the vengeance of the Lord to come. Or if you don't believe that, you defend yourself. Well, I got to stand up for myself. And by the way, th there's nothing wrong at times in defending yourself. In fact, that's why Matthew 18 exists. That if there's problem between brothers and sisters in the Lord, we have a way we can do things. We confront, then we take another person, and then we have the whole church decide between us, and then we accept that. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul is just appalled, however, because they took every matter to the civil magistrates. He says, isn't it just better for you just to be defrauded, let alone air out all the dirty laundry of the church in front of the whole community? And the biggest thing, forgive as the Lord forgave you. That's why I talked about earlier about a time that in ministry, and I really do feel like I, I was wronged, but I knew this. I'd been forgiven way more than what I'd been wronged over. And I had no rock to throw. And then finally, do you really believe that he is your shepherd? That he guides you in paths of righteousness? That he provides for you a table for you in the presence of your enemies? I'm so excited. We, we, are, we are almost getting into the part, the good part of Jacob's life where he does trust. Whereas he's limping towards his brother after he just wrestled with God all night long. As far as we would know, of course, we already know the story, but he doesn't know the story. He might be going to his death and his brother embraces him. What's the thing in your life? You're like, this is impossible. This is impossible. I don't know how I'm getting through this. I don't know how God is going to turn this mess into a message, this test into a testimony. He is your shepherd. And the sheep don't always know where they're going, but they trust the shepherd is going to take them to the green pastures. Worship team, would you lead us in our final song? There's a great comfort in the providence of God. There's a great comfort in knowing that he is our shepherd. 
I pray that you would know that comfort today. And that today, if you are like, you're living high, everything is going great, you'd remember that he is your shepherd and one hour with him is great, better than thousands elsewhere. And today, if you're going through it, remember the shepherd cares for the sheep. He laid down his life for you, his sheep. And he has not forgotten you. Your name is engraved on his hands.